come from Psalm 9 for our Old Testament, and then we will turn to Revelation chapter 13 as we continue our study in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> psalm 9 is a, a psalm that's, that speaks again of uh, calling out to the Lord in times of trouble and trial and realizing that the Lord will watch over us, He will protect us, and He will judge this world in righteousness. So let's hear the Word of God, Psalm 9, beginning at verse 1. I will praise You, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all Your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in You. I will sing praise to Your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at Your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared His throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord will also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know Your name will put their trust in You. For You, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. When He avenges blood, He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all Your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in Your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they have they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment He executes. The wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell. And all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Much comfort in the judgment of God to come for God's people. Revelation 13. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to be looking at the first ten verses this morning. But John continues in this fourth vision. And he says in verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. 
and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of, the, of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. <clears throat> and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the, uh, to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their, or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And there ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we come to Your Word asking that You would illuminate our hearts and our souls to the truth that we find here, that You would, by Your Spirit, open our eyes and ears, not only to hear Your Word, but to be doers of that Word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're never really going to. <clears throat> let me, excuse me. Let me try that again. <clears throat> we will never be able to really understand the Book of Revelation unless we interpret it. First of all, in the light of the events that were actually occurring at the time when it was written. 
We should always ask ourselves, how did the first readers of this book, of God's revelation, how did they understand it? And we should really make a meaningful attempt to try to appreciate the conditions and the circumstances out of which this prophecy arose. And it should be evident by now that the apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ has as its immediate purpose the strengthening of the wavering hearts of persecuted believers there in the 1st and 2nd century A.D. I mean, therefore, every paragraph of this glorious prophecy is filled with significance, with instruction, with comfort, with encouragement for those seven churches of Asia that were addressed in the opening chapters. The book of the Apocalypse that is revealed to the Apostle John by our risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. This is the answer to the crying need of that particular day. And we need to let those circumstances shed a little light on the symbols and the predictions of these visions that we see here. True, this book has a message for us today. But you see, we will never really understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches today unless we understand the specific needs and the circumstances of those seven churches of Asia as they existed there in the first century. And what we find is that the apocalypse here, it's full of references to the events, to the circumstances of that day when it was first received. And what we need to understand here is that believers of that time, followers of Christ, were being severely and bitterly persecuted. Let me give you just some examples to kind of remind you. We've actually seen this over and over. Revelation 6.10 And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, Lord, holy and true, until You judge and avenge our blood? on those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 7.14 And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 16.6 where we're told that God's judgment upon the world is righteous. Why? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Also in Revelation 19.2, For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. <clears throat> but there was not only great and severe persecution of the church in the shedding of blood. It came about in other ways as well. Some people were already languishing away in prisons and dungeons. Others were being arrested and imprisoned. Revelation 2.10 says, Jesus says to His church there, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
They were also suffering from hunger and thirst and famine. They were being killed by wild beasts. You know, Revelation 6, 8 isn't just unbelievers. It's talking about what's going on in the world. John says, So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by beasts of the earth. And then we have this promise of heaven that this is that when we get to heaven, that this is no longer going to be the case, right? For those who are in Christ, when we get to glory, it's going to be completely different. Revelation 7.16, they shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. So entering into glory the glory of the eternal state, it's going to bring an end to all of this suffering that goes on in this world for God's people. Many were also beheaded. We're told that. Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads, on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We're told that in Pergamos, the faithful Antipas had been martyred for the sake of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13. The very first chapter that introduces this book to us lets us know that the Apostle John had been banished to the Isle of Patmos for his testimony of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9. And we should realize that the Roman government encouraged persecution by its false religion of emperor worship, right? This is actually going to play out for several hundred years. Rome was really the the capital of wickedness in its day. And of course, there were false teachers. There were these sects that were troubling the church, as we see in the letters to the churches of Ephesus and Pergamos and Thyatira. Jesus addressed those things. And yet... Believers, Christians, followers of Christ were causing the light of Christ to shine in the darkness even at that time. Jesus told the church of Philadelphia that they had an open door. He had set this open door before her so that she could proclaim the Gospel. Now all of these things were real. They were facts. Many of them hard facts for the church of that day. And we should understand that these believers were not primarily interested in future events of later centuries so much as they were the struggle that was going on right then between light and darkness, between the church and the world, between Christ and the dragon. A war that was being waged right then. And so the book of the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ is the answer to the prayers and the crying needs of those persecuted, afflicted believers in that day. Now, now this does not mean that John was only concerned about the time in which he lived, because you know the real author of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is not the Apostle John, but it's our God, our Holy Spirit who is revealing this entire dispensation of the Gospel era to those of that day, to those who follow them, and to us today, and who follow after us. 
that this book is alive. And it's powerful in its message. Because it is a message that is given to all the people of God from that time until the end of the age. So let's move on to chapter 13 where we learn about these agents, we might call them helpers of the dragon, who join him in his quest to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. We've already been introduced to the dragon back in chapter 12. But you see, the dragon's not alone in his rebellion against the Most High God and his persecution of the saints of God. He has helpers. So my theme this morning will be that the beast of the sea rises to join the dragon in his quest to destroy the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the description of this beast that, that rises out of the sea in verses 1-5, through five, and then the desire of the beast that rises out of the sea, verses 6 through 10. Now, in order for us to kind of see the big picture here, let me give just a a little brief outline of kind of where we're headed as we look at these wicked and terrible helpers of the dragon. Because in chapter 13, it shows us these helpers, or we might even say these tools, which Satan, the dragon, uses to attack the church. Two beasts are described here in chapter 13. We're only going to look at the first one this morning. But let's compare these two beasts for just a moment since we read that whole chapter. The first beast is a monster of indescribable horror. The second actually appears to be a rather harmless creature. And yet for that very reason, it is even more dangerous than the first. The first beast comes up out of the sea. The second arises from the land. The first is Satan's hand, we might say. The second is the devil's mind. The first represents the persecuting power of Satan operating in and through the nations of this world. It it represents their governments that want to persecute and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. The second beast symbolizes the false religions, the false philosophies of this world. Both of these beasts oppose the church throughout this whole dispensation, this time of the gospel age. But there's actually more to come. Because when we get into chapter 14, verse 8, we're introduced to the third helper of the dragon called Babylon, later described as the harlot. And so in all, there are really three helpers here who who come to the forefront in this fourth vision. And they are employed by Satan in his attack upon the earth, upon the church. So just let me summarize it in this way. There's the beast of the sea, really represents anti-Christian persecution. The beast of the land, which is anti-Christian religion or anti-Christian philosophy. And then there's the harlot, which is anti-Christian seduction. So these three are the helpers of the dragon, They are the enemies of God's people. They were alive and well at the end of the first century A.D. And they are still alive today, trying to destroy the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's take a look at what uh, the Apostle John sees next in his fourth vision here, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a great, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, 
and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. John is really seeing the dragon here. We're not really told that in the first verse. But the dragon goes to the seashore in order to to summon help for his rebellion against God, for his persecution of the church. And the first ally comes up out of the sea. The second comes from the land that we will look at next time, Lord willing. And yet, what does John say he sees here? He says he beholds a monster, really, of indescribable horror coming up out of the sea. And very gradually, this this beast rises out of the water. And and first John sees nothing but horns. And there are ten of them. And the ten horns are covered with crowns. And next, the heads appear, the seven heads. The beast has seven heads, and on these heads are names of blasphemy. So how do we interpret these symbols, these, these signs from this vision? The sea really represents the nation's. We see this in Isaiah chapter 17, verses 12 through 14, where the roaring of the people is compared to the roaring of the sea. I'm just going to read part of that now. We're going to come back to this text a little bit later. Woe to the multitudes of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. And just to prove this maybe a little more clearly, uh, Revelation 17.15 proves the point because it's in another vision, a a vision yet to come, the next vision. Uh, But the angel says to John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so the the waters represent the nations. And, And the beast that comes out of the sea not only represents the governments of these nations, But you will notice how this beast is very closely associated with the dragon and with the beast that comes out of the abyss that we actually saw back in chapter 11, verse 7. The one that murdered the two witnesses. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So remember, we're we're covering the same ground here because the Spirit of God is emphasizing this vision by a repetition of what is coming to us so that we will be ready for it when it does come. Each vision really covers the same ground, but they go further and further as we will see as we continue on. So the point is that this sea-born beast this beast that rises out of the sea, symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan. The power of persecution that's embodied in all the nations, in all the governments of this world throughout all of history. It is world domination directed against God's people wherever and whenever it appears in history. That's the beast of the sea. The beast assumes different forms. We see that in the fact that it has seven heads. Right? It has different forms. They, they, we could look at these and say, that, well, they represent some of the nations of old. right? Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, Rome. And really, it kind of goes on and on. But though the forms differ, you see, the essence remains the same. It is worldly government directed against the church of Jesus Christ. It is this beast 
and in this beast that this persecuting power of the dragon, the Satan, becomes visible in this world. In fact, the, the account, this really accounts for the, the resemblance here between the dragon and the beast, right? Because they're both cruel monsters having ten horns and seven heads. But you notice there is a little difference here. In, in the case of this beast, it's the horns, which probably represent cruelty, and not the heads that are crowned. The horns are crowned. But the dragon wears his crowns, crowns of presumed authority, on his own head. In other words, it's, it's truly the dragon. It's truly Satan who is ruling here. And it, it's his plan that is being executed by the governments of this world. Now, true, the, the earthly rulers do wear crowns as symbols of their, you know, crown cruelty here. But these earthly rulers are, are subject to, and they, they receive their inspiration from the dragon. And this is true of every worldly ruler that persecutes the church. They are fulfilling the plan and the desires of the dragon. These rulers, governments, they blaspheme God. In fact, they even demand divine titles for themselves. And you probably know this, in the days of John, Roman emperors demanded that their subjects address them as Lord and, and Savior. The fact that these beasts represent every form of worldly government which persecutes the church whenever and wherever it appears in history, it becomes clear that what we are seeing here, according to verse 2, these beasts that we see uh, are, are the same beasts that Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel chapter 7. And yet these beasts have all been combined into one. Into one beast here in this vision. Revelation 13.2 Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So in Daniel, we have four beasts that represent the, the four successive world empires that are coming, right? And, and here, uh, this composite beast does not symbolize merely one empire. It's not symbolizing one government. Rather, it's a composite. It's a putting together of all those anti-Christian governments that have ever been, that are now, and ever shall be. And so this beast has the body of a leopard ready uh, to swiftly spring after its prey. It has the feet of a bear to rip and to crush its enemies. And it has the mouth of a lion that roars, eager for its prey, anxious to destroy. As much as we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And yet there's more to this beast. Notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against him? As John looks at this beast of the sea, he noticed that, that one of these seven heads seems to have received a mortal wound, a fatal wound. 
And yet the wound is healed. And we're told that because of this, the whole world follows the beast in wonder and amazement. That is actually in a spirit of adoration and worship. Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against him? In fact, in worshiping the beast, men are also rendering worship to the dragon who gave his authority to the beast. But there's one more thing uh, in this description of the beast. We're told that the beast now begins to speak. That the mouth of the lion utters great boasts, blasphemies. And we're told that this continues for 42 months. Again, a symbol for that time between the first and the second comings of Christ. And the blasphemy is directed against God and all who dwell in heaven. This beast, we should realize, he looks invincible. I mean, after all, he's conquered death. And if there's one thing that we should notice in this, is the fact that the dragon always tries to copy the Lord with his counterfeits. Christ rose from the dead. The dragon, the beast of the dragon, looks like he has conquered death. And what's the result of all this? The world follows the dragon, follows the beast, wholeheartedly, fully, completely, without any reservation. Who is like the beast? Now, people of God, what are we to make of these things? You know, really, the point of the text thus far is to put within us a holy fear of the evil and the wickedness that is aligned against us. And we should not have some idea of the Christian life being, you know, a life of ease, a life of happiness as we wait for that which is to come. In fact, you might remember in one of our conferences that one of the speakers, Carl Truman to be exact, said that the last couple of hundred years in this country have really been abnormal in what it comes to the way that most Christians live in this world. You know, too many Christians have an idea that, yes, well, judgment is coming, you're right, but we get to live a good life until it does, and then we get to skip out on it before it happens. But you see, that's not the way that the Scriptures present the life of a Christian in this world. And we have that reinforced over and over in this book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, what has always happened to the sons of promise? They've always been persecuted by the sons of the slave woman. What has always happened to those who follow the Lord in this world? They're taunted, right? They're mocked, they're persecuted, they're arrested, they're imprisoned, they're tortured, and they're even put to death. And so the normal Christian life is a life of trial and tribulation. And for the most part, you and I would have to say we don't know very much of that. We know very little of that. Now what we do know is that if things happen the way we've been reading about, if those things really started to happen to the church in our day, we should really question ourselves, shouldn't we? On how we would handle that. I mean, do we really believe that we would put our lives on the line for the sake of Christ? You know, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering in ways today that you and I can't even imagine. 
And I think we, we do feel it, don't we? Don't we feel a growing anti-Christian sentiment in this country? But you see, what we need to understand is that we should expect it to be so. That the more that we are an aroma of Christ, the more we will stick out in a society that has forgotten God. And we have forgotten God today. We used to have a, a bit of a Christian conscience in this country, if you want to put it that way. But it's really fallen away, hasn't it? I mean, I can remember when I was young, people used to come to church services on, well, at least Christmas and Easter, right? They had some conscious or maybe even unconscious thought that, that maybe this is what they should do because they had some memory of it from their childhood or something, but that seems to be completely gone. We have forgotten God. We've removed Him as much as we possibly can. And here is the warning that you and I need to take from from the bigger picture of the Word of God. The world has forgotten God and the world wants to make a world without Him. And yet that same attitude can permeate the church. It's an attitude that can permeate the people of God who call upon His name. And we see this same warning over and over in the Scriptures. We see it especially in the Old Testament, which were given for our admonition, right? God warns His people over and over, what? Don't forget me. Don't forget me. And yet we see over and over, what? That they do. And it's no different today. You and I are like the proverbial frog in the pot, right? Water's getting hotter and hotter, and we're think, we, we think we're in the hot tub. And yet we are slowly and surely being boiled to death. And if we don't wake up soon, it will be too late. Think of how our culture has, has already infiltrated our lives. Think of all the compromises that we have made. You know, I know people, and I know they say they're Christians, and I'm not trying to doubt that, but, you know, the whole idea of attending a worship service with God's people doesn't seem to be that important anymore. To gather together and to worship God? What does the Scripture say? Especially in the times that we're living in. Hebrews 10, you know those verses. Chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. The writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And now verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. Did you notice here that it does not say that as we get closer to the end of the age, we probably can gather a little less. Because, I mean, it's almost here, right? But rather what it says is as if the day of Christ draws closer and closer, we need to do this more and more, not less and less. Worship with God's people is not a non-essential. It's actually one of the most essential means of grace that Christ has given to His church. One that we forsake at the peril of our souls. In fact, if you just listen to what God's Word says right after these verses... 
You will hear that. Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. The next two verses. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. When you and I don't gather as God's people, we're acting like the children of this world and not the children of God. There have been many times through the history of the church when Christians have risked arrest, imprisonment, torture, and even death just for gathering together with God's people. And yet today we seem to be afraid we might get sick. Now, beloved, I I told you I was going to come back to Isaiah chapter 17. Verses 12 through 14. Because these verses make it clear that the sea represents the world, and it really fits very well with our text where we see this beast of the sea rise up as it represents the governments of this world that are trying to do away with our God, do away with His Christ, and do away with Christ's church. But let me read that again and let me finish it this time. We have this description. Woe to the multitudes of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. I'm going to stop there. That's where we stopped before. The world we live in is a world of chaos. Especially when you consider that it has unloosed itself from the moorings of the God of the Bible. And the rejection of our God, the forgetting of our God, it only leads to one place. To judgment. To destruction. To that fiery indignation that we've just read about. But you see, the prophet goes on there in Isaiah 17 to, to give God's people the comfort that you and I need so much in this world that is filled with chaos, with hatred for Christ and His church. Because this is what it goes on to say, but God will rebuke them and they will flee away. Far away, it says. And be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Yes, in this world, we will face persecution as the faithful church of Jesus Christ. That's what He promises. And it's going to get bad. Very bad. So bad that we may wonder if the church can even survive. And yet she will. Because, of course, what's the worst that the, church, the world can do to the church? To us. All they can do is destroy our bodies. Yet God promises that He will not only save our souls, but He will save our bodies as well. He will save us body and soul. Because salvation in Christ it involves The whole man. Christ saves the whole man from the ravages of sin and from the judgment that is to come. And it's only those who are in Christ, it's only those who know the fullness of God's love for them in Christ who will enjoy the fullness of joy at His right hand and His pleasures forevermore. And why does all of this rebellion against God, against His church, against Christ, why does it all come to nothing? Why? You know why. Because unto us, 
a child is born. Because unto us a son is given. And the last part of our text here, and I need to hurry here, verses 6 through 10, we, we see the desire of the beast of the sea. You see, this, this anti Christian government has only one desire, and that is to throw off the God of heaven, his rule, his savior, his salvation, his church. It's all one. It's, it's one desire to rid this world of the knowledge of God and his blessed salvation in Christ. And listen again to what the beast says in verse 6. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So it begins with blasphemy, right? Speaking against God. Speaking against heaven. Of those who are in heaven. Against all things that are holy. And yet it doesn't stop there, does it? Because this horrible beast sets his eyes on those on earth as well. And we might even think, well, that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, after all, our God can do all things, and He can and He will destroy the works of the wicked one. We know that, right? But again, we are being warned here beforehand what is coming down the pike so that we will be ready. It is as the hymn writer puts it so well. He asks the question, must I be carried to the, to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? And then he answers, Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. See, God will support us through whatever is coming. But we need to know what's coming. But, and look at what's coming. Look at verse 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. The beast of the sea appears to be winning, at least for a time. And and we've seen this before, again, back in chapter 11 with the murder of the two witnesses, right? Which represent the church. But not only do those who follow Christ, they feel the wrath of this beast, but at the same time, the world itself rejects Christ. This world that forgets God... They follow the beast, don't they? And they worship the beast. And notice again how they're described in verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's a book of life. And in this book are written all the names of those for whom Christ died. Those whose names are not in that book, they have no hope of life. No hope of eternal life. We don't know who's in it. We're not told. We're not supposed to know. But yet the language here should remind us of the opening chapter in Ephesians. Let me read verses 3 through 6. These are just comforting words for us as God's people. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. 
So here is the language in, in Revelation 13 that speaks really of predestination. It speaks of election before the world began. But what I want to point out to you here is that it's not just the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. These names were written from the foundation of the world. And that's actually confirmed in Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, where it says exactly that as it's really repeating this same portion in another vision, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Again, speaking of unbelievers. But believers' names are. That's the point. Now this, of course, is followed by another warning in verse 9. And if you remember here, these, these words that we read in verse 9, they echo the words of Jesus from His day on earth and from His words to the churches at the beginning of this book. Something very similar has been said. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. You have ears to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Are are you attuned to his call upon your life? You see, the the word of Christ, the, the preaching of the gospel is always like a key. It's one of the keys of the kingdom, right? And it goes into the lock of your heart. And it always has an effect. Because it either opens your heart to the truth as it is in Jesus, or it locks your heart and hardens your heart in your unbelief and in your sin. And if we should learn anything here from our study here in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not only the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again to bring about His glorious kingdom and to destroy all who oppose Him, but we should also learn here that the time is short. Today is the day of salvation. Today you must hear. Because tomorrow may be too late. And you know what the Bible says when the door is locked. When it is shut and you cannot come in. And there is no hope. There is no life, no salvation. There will only be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the day of wrath that is coming. That's what the Bible warns us. Today is the day of salvation. Today we must believe in Christ. Last verse, verse 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Notice that it is God's will that will prevail. And that we as God's people are reminded once again that the future on this earth is going to require patience and faith on our part. It's not promising us an easy time. In fact, it says it's going to be an incredibly hard time. A time where we will be sorely tested, where we will be tried by the evils of this world. But you see, just as Jesus told His disciples when He was telling them about His coming death and departure, so He tells us here what's coming. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. That your faith may be strengthened. This isn't out of the ordinary. We knew this was coming. This is what Jesus said. And so the days are coming when the church of Jesus Christ will be sorely pressed, even more than it is today. We hear it in our text, verse 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Verse 10. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. 
And in this last statement, it means that our patience and our faith are going to be tried and proved to be true. As we wait upon the Lord, as we look to Him who is coming to crush Satan under our feet shortly. Now, beloved, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to point out to you the the words of comfort that we find here in our text. Because I want to point you to the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You and I, we've gathered here this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper. To partake of this ordinance that was given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To remind us that He has already won the victory over sin and death and hell. That He has won the victory and it will come to fulfillment, the victory over the dragon, over the beast of the sea, over the beast of the land, and over the harlot Babylon. All anti-Christian persecution, all anti-Christian religion, all anti-Christian seduction, it will all come to nothing. There will always be believers on the earth, even as the days worsen, even when it looks like it's not so. Even when it looks like the dragon has won. Because you see, it's not Satan, but our God who reigns and who rules supreme. So what I want to do here is uh, close here with the words of the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. You might want to turn to first Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and hear these words of comfort. Hear these words of assurance. As you wait on the Lord who is coming to judge the quick and the dead. I want to read verses 3 through 10. But there are great words of comfort for us here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. As it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. And and listen, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, that's what God's going to do. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together.